Hey team, it's Matt Drinkon here. And you might have heard, my brand new book releases on Amazon on March 8th. It's been a labor of love that I think can really help you navigate some of the challenges you're experiencing in your own life. I go over toxic positivity and how to think you're in it for everyone else. In reality, you're in it for yourself. And I express that through this entire book and help learn from our own mistakes and how to turn the lens on ourselves and ask good questions. So go to Amazon on March 8th and you can get the Kindle version for only 99 cents. Just search for the book title, The Eternal Optimist. It's never too late. And you can download it directly to your device. That's it for me. Let's get into today's episode. And with that introduction, Mr. Eric Hatch, welcome to the Eternal Optimist Podcast. Eric, how are you today, sir? Oh my gosh, I'm on top of the world. It's fun to be here. Thanks much. What a great answer. I'm always looking, and maybe I shouldn't say this out loud, I'm always looking for the answer, I'm good, so I can just rip into it, I'm good. Are you, what does that mean to you? I really want to dive in a little bit. So when you say you're on top of the world, what does that mean? Like, why on top of the world? That's an exceptional answer. Why on top of the world? So I go back to a mindset that I adopted early on. I was in college, went through some pretty major trauma of losing my mom when she fought a cancer battle for five years. And in college, I was orphaned. My dad was never in the picture. And I had a chance to give a speech at my college graduation. I was the chosen speaker. I've always loved a microphone in my hands. I'm one of those weirdos that loves talking and public spaces and that sort of thing. And I talked about how today is the best day I've ever had. And I took that mindset on of regret regardless of the hard stuff, today is the best day I've ever had. And so most days I do pretty good at following that mantra because I understand that everything I want in life is on the other side of how I show up. And if I show up as an eternal optimist, if I show up as somebody who is hopeful and filled with possibilities instead of impossibilities, I'm going to find a lot more fruit on the tree. So that's been my mindset. That's been my mantra really for most of my life is that today's the best day of my life. So how am I? I'm literally on top of the world. Don't get me wrong. There's rain. There's some clouds. There's some crap that's not going my way. And yet I am still more blessed than I ever deserve. Fantastic answer. Absolutely splendid answer. That may be the best answer. You may be in the Hall of Fame of answers. I win. That was awesome. That's a victory. And what's coming to mind right now is that so many times when people ask me that same question, I want to say my version of what you just said. It's a very sunny picture. And I always feel like I've got to say, and there's hard stuff going on too. Just want to be grateful for where we're at today. And so I wonder, do you ever feel that way? That after sharing the positive and sharing what you've just shared, I saw that there was a couple of mentions in there of, yeah, and there's some rain too. I choose to look at it this way. Do you ever feel that your positivity or your energy might overpower some that are down or challenged that you have to protect for? I'll tell you this. I think pessimists hate me. You're going to find your tribe and whatever you throw out, like everything in this world is contagious. Whatever you throw out there is going to come back to you. You attract what you are. And I don't want to be surrounded by a bunch of negative a-holes. I don't want to be surrounded by Debbie Downers. Victims are some of the most exhausting people in my life. To have bad things happen is inevitable for us all. But to live on that pity pot is a really dangerous spot, man. Yeah. Absolutely. Your first words out of your mouth where you're talking about how your mom passed and your dad wasn't really in the picture. And I was going to ask you the first question of what's the hard stuff? What's very challenging that you've been through? And I think before I even asked, you answered something. But I'll let's go back to that and just see what comes out. 
What is something that comes up when I ask you, Eric, what's the hardest thing that you've had to endure or overcome? Boy, therapy has shown me a lot. I jumped back into therapy. It had been like 15 years of avoiding therapy and things have felt pretty good, but I've had a really exhausting last seven months. I've lost hundreds of thousands of dollars with one of my businesses. I've had a whole bunch of people that I poured into just up and leave and give the old double gun salute on their way out. Not intentionally, so not out of crass, but crass intent, but I felt completely chopped down and therapy has opened up a lot of things for me and it all comes back to daddy issues. I think most people have mom or dad issues. And I was raised in a single parent home with one foot in the welfare bucket most of my life growing up. And then when I was 16, my mom got diagnosed with stage four cancer. And I was really her caretaker along with some of my family members for five years. It changed the course of my life for forever. And that was the like one impact that changed my life the most. But everything in my life is seen through the lens of not being wanted or desired by my own father. The pain of rejection has hurt far more than the pain of loss. And so rejection for me in any way, shape, or form is amplified because of that daddy issue. And my dad passed away now 11 or 12 years ago. And the great news is, Matt, is I was able to find forgiveness literally six months before my dad died. I was in the ministry and I had just transitioned out. I spent about eight years doing youth ministry at a church and then another couple of years doing some side gig things. So about 10 years into the ministry, I had one of my youth group kids, his name's Graham, came to me and he's like, Eric, my dad's about to die. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And I knew that he had this really broken relationship with his father, just absolutely crushed him. And Graham and I went out and I was connected with him. I'm like, Graham, dude, I know you have this anger and animosity and hate and this venom flowing through you towards your father. If he's going to be gone soon, I'm afraid if you don't find forgiveness that you're going to continue to wear that weight. And so can you pray your way through it? Can you find your way through it? When you are angry at someone, it's like drinking poison and expecting them to die. It's impossible. The forgiveness that we have is this like trap for us. And so I encourage him like, Graham, you got to forgive your dad. Can you find a way? And he's like, hey, Hatch, you first. And I'm like, oh, screw you, Graham. No, we're not talking about me here. We're talking about you. Like, I'm pretty good at giving advice. I don't need to take any advice. I I was so quick and easy and ready to be like, Graham, you know what, dude? That's for you, but that's not for me. And so I went home and I prayed and I wrestled and I talked with my wife and we processed all this. And I'm like, am I ready to forgive my dad for all the mistakes that he made for everything else? And there's this episode, if you haven't done so, go to Netflix, run to Netflix when this is done and check out Tony Robbins's I'm not your guru. Have you seen it, Matt? Absolutely, yeah. Wow, powerful. Okay, so Tony has, it's literally at about the 17 minute mark, this young gal gets up and she says to Tony, hey, I'm dealing with these issues with food and my weight. And she's like a 21 year old gal. And he just keeps on asking questions like Tony Robbins does. And in that, it turns out that he says, all right, when you were younger, whose love did you crave more, your mom or your dad? And she's like, well, my dad, but my dad chose drugs and my dad chose this life of addiction and he was filled with hatred and all these things. And he's like, have you blamed your dad for things? She's like, oh, absolutely. I blame him for like all these things in my life, all these compounded pieces. And Tony says in that moment, he says, 
if you're going to blame him for all the things that have gone wrong, you also have to blame him for the things that are great in your world. You have to learn to blame gracefully and intentionally. And I hadn't seen it at that time, but Tony gave such a better voice to it than I ever could. And so in that moment, Matt, I'm realizing like, oh my gosh, I've blamed my dad for all the wrong, but my world is so filled with abundance and opportunity and love. And I have to blame him because his absence created fire and fuel inside of me. And his mistakes taught me lessons that I won't ever duplicate. And now I have two kids, eight and six years old, and I will never be the father that my dad wasn't. His absence grew me to be a way better dad than I ever knew possible. And so all these things I learned to blame gracefully. And so through that, I found forgiveness because I looked at my dad and I was able to maturate with this amount of empathy for the first time. I went from apathy to sympathy. I started to feel sorry for his plight instead of just not caring about him. But then I'm like, man, what would it have been like? Did my dad consciously say, I want to hurt my son? And those weren't ever his choices. He was a slave to addiction and he didn't have the strength and he didn't have the surroundings and he didn't believe in himself well enough. And he gave me the gift of believing in myself when I saw that he didn't believe in himself, right? And so I found this forgiveness. Six months before he died, I sent him a letter. I apologized for my sins and shortcomings. I asked him for forgiveness of me. He almost immediately reached out afterwards, spelled my name wrong, which is just a bizarre, weird dad thing that I have with him, right? Like that's how not connected to my life that he was. I'm Eric with a K and he spelt it Eric with a C, but he died six months later and I've had nothing but peace in my life. I still have emptiness and things I'm trying to piece together now because so many things in my world are accelerated and disastrous (laughs) in some sorts of ways because of that absence. But that ability to forgive was such a gift that I gave myself and I was able to give to him before he lost his life. Wow. And that was born out of the conversation with your friend Graham, who then turned the table back on you and said, when you do it, I'll do it. Yeah, it was a you first. I'm in the process of trying to figure out what the framework for my next book is going to be and the title I'm playing with. And somebody's probably going to steal it because they're listening here, but it's Leaders Go First. Simon Sinek talks about how leaders eat last, and it is the absolute positive framework of how leaders need to let everybody else speak first. They need to listen. This world needs leaders to lead in grace and in kindness and in generosity, and you shouldn't sit idly by and wait for somebody else to take that step. You need to be the first to go and to lead the way. So many people are watching people like you and me, Matt, and they're waiting for us to consciously move towards greatness because they will unconsciously follow people that inspire them and lead them. And because if you want to be Matt, you got to do what Matt does and act like Matt acts. And if we're quiet about our greatness, if we're silent about our kindness, the world doesn't pay attention to it. I'm on your show right now through a guy named Kyle Reedstrom. And Kyle is one of my favorite people on earth. And I write about Kyle in my first book. And I'm going to give that to all your listening audience here at the end of this. They can have a copy of the book. You just got to pay shipping and handling. But I talk about Kyle in this moment where he came to me and he's like, Eric, when I'm 30 years old, I want to donate $100,000. Like how big of a life do you have to live when you're a 26 year old and you're like, when I'm 30, I want to donate $100,000. And Kyle saw me giving generously. And he's been a guy that's followed me through a lot of the paths and moves I've made in life. 
And it's so incredible to watch him shine in this. I'm like, okay, Kyle, but if you're going to give $100,000, like you don't just show up and run a marathon. You don't just show up and run 26.2 miles. You train into it because this is going to be a lifestyle, not just an instance that you do. Yes. So I said, well, in your 27th year, how about we have you donate $10,000? And in your 28th year, why don't we do 30,000? And in your 29th year, why don't we do 60? And in your 30th year, why don't you do 100? That actually added up to being $200,000 over the course of four years. And Kyle, as you know him, is an unbelievably generous human being of his time, his talent, and his treasure. And that all happened because a leader went first. Now, I think he had it in him in the first place, but he needed somebody to model that behavior. And that's what leaders do is leaders model behavior. They go first and they do the things and share with those that they're connected with. The fact that you call this the Eternal Optimist Podcast tells me that you have a message of light and not darkness that you're trying to model for other people. And so you're just finding like-minded folks to come alongside. So everything, again, everything we do is contagious, Matt. The generosity, the kindness, the love that we give into the world, but also the gossip and the greed and the selfishness and the slander. Be so careful about what you consume and be so careful about what comes out of you. Examples of giving first that I've just witnessed and our audience has heard from you. One is that you went first with your dad and you forgave your dad. Example two is that a dear friend, Kyle, said, I'm going to do this. And you challenged him and guided him along the way and didn't just accept it. You challenged it. What's another example of you going first, Eric, of something that you're intentionally doing that may not be easy for you? Or it may not be easy for someone else to witness or to be a part of, but what's another example of you going first? So I'm a realtor by trade. After the ministry, I went full-time into real estate. And then from there, about seven years ago, opened up a coaching company. And so I'm a business and a real estate coach. I am a public and motivational speaker. I'm a realtor, but ultimately I'm a bit of a hot mess. So all that to be said to your aforementioned question, Matt, is we've thrown events with our coaching company over the last seven years or so. At the very first event that we did, and Kyle was at this, we held it in our office in Fargo, North Dakota. It was the most unimpressive setting. I just invited my successful realtor friends from around the country and about 20 of them came to Fargo. And that's love if somebody says, I'm going to come to Fargo, right? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I had about 15 people from my team in the room and I had about 20 people from around the country, 35 of us. And in the room was a guy named Nick Shivers. Nick is a realtor in Portland, Oregon, and a guy who's after my own heart. So... In 2010, when I was working in the ministry, I led a group of people to Haiti. And we did, this was right after Haiti had this really huge earthquake in January of 2010. Over a quarter of a million people died in this earthquake and already the most poverty stricken country in the Western hemisphere. And so in August of 2010, I led a mission group to Haiti. And while I was there, I mean, like my heart was completely broken. We see these stories on the news and we just let it quickly pass us by. and We disregard the reality that's facing us out there for the world. I held it. I smelt it. I lived in it for 10 days. And I came back and I'm like, oh, that was so good. And I sat with the owner of this orphanage. It was called the Son of God Orphanage in Carrefour, Haiti. And I sat with him with a translator and poured into him, thanked him for all he was doing to help save these kids, gave him an extra $4,000 that we had raised. And I'm like, please do this. Please take this to help these kids. Two months after that event, I get an article sent to me that says the Son of God Orphanage in Carrefour, Haiti is corrupt. 
there were 120 plus kids at this orphanage that we went to. There were two workers. Fast forward a couple of months, and the government finally stepped in. And Haiti was a really corrupt country back then and still struggles mightily today. But they were down to 50 kids, literal 70 to 75 kids gone because they were murdered for organ harvesting or sold into the sex trade industry, literally selling their bodies. These are six-year-old kids, Matt. And I was completely wrecked when I heard that. This was at the time in which I'm taking and launching my real estate career. I had been a part-time realtor for a couple of years, but I'm staring at going from a job in which I'm pouring into people into something in which I'm a business person. And I didn't understand it at the time, but I see it clearly now, is that my calling is to be a minister and a servant as a businessman. The world doesn't need more pastors and churches. The world needs more people in real estate and hospitals and education doing God's work and serving people. And so all this to be said, a couple of years after all this happened, I'm in real estate and I'm finding my way, but I want to have a capitalistic business with a heart for the world. I want everything I do to serve people. The team I get to lead, the customers I get to service, but the benefit of having a large, abundant life is to serve the world. And leaders need to go first on this. And I found a guy named Nick Shivers in Portland, Oregon, that was using his real estate business to fund an orphanage. It was to fund a kid's home, really. There's a company called Forward Edge International. And Nick was funding, literally saying, and has on his signs in his yard, like the purchase of this home helps to save kids at risk. And Nick and I joined together and we both had this conscious capitalism kind of idea. And we're like, we can't be the only people that feel like God has given us a big life and we need to do something with it. We can't be the only ones. And so we just said, let's start something called Sell a Home, Save a Child. Let's just start it. It's a really long name. It was an open domain. So we were happy with that. So sellahomesaveachild.org. And we just started inviting realtors and lenders and title companies to give a portion of their proceeds and or to give monthly to make a difference because we wanted our business to have massive impact. Fast forward now, and we've raised a few million bucks with that organization. We've helped to save a bunch of kids and we've done some really great good. So in this, at the very first coaching summit I ever did in Fargo, North Dakota, Nick is in the room. I'm in the room. And I'm like, hey, guys, I've never seen this done at a real estate conference ever. And I've been to dozens. I've never seen this at any sort of convention. But I'm like, does anybody want to give? Does anybody have the heart in which you want to make a difference? Are you called to more than just accumulation? But are you called to generosity as well? And so we told some stories about things we've seen and kids we've held and our hearts that have been wrecked. And that first time with that room of 35 people, we raised 19,000 bucks, just a casual ask. And then we went to a different person's conference in which we were both asked to speak to talk about Sell a Home, Save a Child. And I ended up pulling a Kanye. I went up there and I hijacked the microphone. I'm like, anybody in here want to give? Can we make a difference? And we raised 60,000 at that one. And then I almost got kicked out, but I didn't. The next year we went back and we raised 45,000. And the next year we raised $100,000. And then at my conferences, we started doing these live auctions in which we're selling and auctioning off just the craziest of things. Matt, this last September in Fargo, North Dakota, we had 250 people at our conference. We probably had 180 people at the actual event. That was our live auction fundraiser party. So 180 people in the room we raised $400,000 in the course of an hour and a half. We sold an apple pie, $12 store-bought apple pie. We sold it for $50,000. Just because people were inspired and they wanted to go and make a difference, they wanted to do something big, 
Privately, before that happened, we invited some high net worth people into a private room in which we said, do you want to help save some kids? Do you want to take out some bad guys? We got this thing going on. What do you think? We raised $750,000 in that. So in the course of one night at one event, we raised $1.15 million to save kids. And I'm a realtor in Fargo, Matt. Wow. If I tell myself the narrative of I'm the realtor in Fargo, but it started seven years ago in a room because nobody I had ever seen before asked at a conference to say, hey, do you want to do some good? I can't be the only one. And Sell a Home, Save a Child has raised millions of dollars. And my efforts through what we've done have raised a couple million dollars. I started a nonprofit when I worked for the church in the 2000s, I started a nonprofit called Homeless and Hungry. That was a 30-hour simulation of people who were taking on the plight of being homeless. So you'd fast for 30 hours, you'd sleep in a cardboard box outside, no toothbrushes, no toiletries, no cell phones, and you just felt like what it was like to be homeless. And so that raised a million bucks. I got about 6 million bucks under my belt right now. And I'm just getting started because Matt, to your question that yes, like 15 minutes ago, and I'm a hard guy to shut up. To your question, leaders go first. And leaders need to go first in the most powerful and impactful of ways because this world desperately needs leadership. This world desperately needs servants. This world desperately needs eternal optimists. And I think we're hearing one right now. And wow, what a fantastic segue. Thank you for sharing that, Eric. I had no idea. Now we know. And now it's out there. And I'm wondering if any of our listeners hear this. You also mentioned message you for a copy of the book, Pay Shipping and Handling. But I wonder if there's a link or something that any of our listeners might want to donate or give to the causes that Eric's talking about because this is a man that has the passion and the energy behind it. I'm witnessing it real here live through the camera. If you're listening, that's great. If you can see it on YouTube, then you can feel the authenticity that Eric is sharing. This is absolutely amazing. This is how revolutions are started. It's by people getting inspired to serve and through love and through helping others. And I just love the way that you framed everything. This is the Mm -hmm. antidote to the negativity that we hear in the social media and the news. This is hope and you can do it too, one person at a time, get behind someone like Eric. This is leader going first. So I honor you for that, Eric. That was amazing. Thanks, buddy. Amazing. And you started off by saying that you're a hot mess. So (laughs) if this hot mess can do all of that and inspire me and all of you listening, then team, we have a lot. We have a lot that we can give. Please, Eric, you're going to say something. Go ahead. I was just going to say, if you do have the heart to give, it doesn't need to be my thing. It should be a thing. You got to figure out what you're going to give to and how you can go deep with it. But one of my things is sellahomesaveachild.org. It funds Forward Edge International, which is helping to save kids all over the world, stateside and in third world countries. So Nicaragua, Kenya, Haiti, Mexico, and the United States as well. Wow. So we've gone really... I would say real high level into giving, into serving, into leaders going first. And I want to rewind for a minute into something that so many nuggets of wisdom here. I don't want this to be overshadowed. That You had the courage to forgive your father for something that you don't know why I did it back in the day. You don't know exactly. It caused you to feel a certain way for a period of time. And through that hardship, you grew and it's helped to shape you into who you've become. So for every side of challenge, there is another side of the coin that leads to opportunity. I wanted to highlight that because that's one of the premises of our podcast. So thank you for that. And when you forgive someone who may have a perceived wrong or a slight, how did you summon the courage to actually do that? You've shared the story about Graham, but go back to that moment when you actually committed to, I'm going to forgive my father. 
What was that moment like? And what put you over the edge to actually forgive him, Eric? Matt, I was tired of feeling that way. I spent a lot of years being angry. Here's the full transparency story. I haven't given it all, not because I'm sheepish about it, but my mom, when she first got diagnosed with cancer, she was diagnosed with cervical cancer. And most people know that cervical cancer is contracted through HBV or genital warts, which is a strange thing, to, strange thing to talk about with your mom. But it was contracted one of two ways. To my understanding, one is my dad had a whole lot of affairs, and so it could have been contracted that way. Or there was a moment in time, my sister, who's four years older than me, she was born, I was not, but my dad got a call saying that he needed to come to town because he was a roofer and that there was a job that he needed to do. The guys that made the call went after my dad left the house, went and broke into our trailer and stole all my dad's drugs and money because my dad was a drug dealer, stole all my dad's drugs and money and raped my mom. And the narrative I told myself is that my dad was my mom's murderer. Imagine the feeling of that animosity and that un relenting hate. My dad didn't ever intentionally kill my mom. Took a lot of years to come to that understanding. Again, you go from apathy to sympathy to empathy. And I think when I hit this point in my life where I was tired of feeling the way in which I did, as well as I had enough maturity to walk a mile in his shoes, I was going to say I pitied him. It feels like an aggressive descriptor, but it's accurate. I felt really bad for him. He had situations in which he was a victim. He had situations in which he didn't choose. I don't know if you follow Alex Hormozzi. He's one of my favorite influencers to follow. And his book, $100 Million Offer, is my favorite marketing book I've read in years. But in that, Alex had an Instagram reel that he posted a couple of days ago. And he said, I've come to the conclusion that luck determines so much of our success. And that was his opening line, which is a great opening line because most of us think that we're self-made and that luck doesn't play into it at all. But he took a different spin on it. And he took a different spin. He started to say, I was born in the United States. I had two parents. Do you understand that if you're born in the United States, you've already hit the lottery? Absolutely. That's like the, the jackpot. Yeah. The absolute jackpot. If you have clean water to drink, jackpot. Alex recently just gave me that perspective to be like, all right. I hit the jackpot. But he also said, if you were a woman born in Serbia, your chances of massively changing your stars and impacting the world are that much more difficult. And my dad was born, yes, he hit the jackpot because he was born in the United States and had two parents. But he also came from a place of a whole lot of violence, a whole lot of addiction. My dad had a fifth grade education and a 10-year-old shouldn't be saying, I'm done with school. That was his surrounding, his upbringing. And so you start compounding all these things. And I looked at it and I, it wasn't black and white for me anymore, Matt. It was colorful. It was all these different hues of things. And I recognized, oh my gosh, I started to understand. And it didn't dissolve the anger, but I was just able to understand the situation. I think situational awareness and your ability to peel the layers of the onion back are so important. I first heard that peel the layer of the onions back from Shrek, but he would just say things like people are complicated. They have a lot of layers like an onion. If I'm going to just hate somebody, I only know the outside layer. And if I can peel the layers back well enough, I'll start to understand. doesn't mean I approve. And I need to be really clear with this because when people hear about forgiveness, they think that it parallels with acceptance. And it was anything but. I didn't welcome my dad back into my life. He wanted to. He's like, hey, please call me. Sent a letter back immediately after I had sent him mine. But I wanted nothing to do with him. I wasn't inviting him back into my life. I was letting go of the things that were holding me down. And turns out they were probably holding him down as well. I love the contrast between forgiveness and acceptance. 
Can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think that might be a place where some of our listeners, they might be stuck with a couple of these concepts, forgiveness and acceptance. Can you go a little bit deeper on that for us? I think a lot of it parallels the power of proximity. In 2008, I messed up really, really big. I got into real estate full-time in 2006. And I got into real estate as full transparency was to try to rid myself of the debt I was accruing and to financially change my stars. I told you I'm a hot mess and I'm laying it all out for you here, Matt, because my mom died in 2001. What did I do with that money? Because I inherited enough money to pay off my student loan debt, to pay off my car, and then I had about 5,000 bucks remaining. And what did I do with that 5,000 bucks? I became a professional gambler. I was an entrepreneur early on from lemonade stands to professional gambling. This was during the online poker boom that happened in the early 2000s. And I was a professional gambler and was pretty great at it. And so then I get a full-time job at the church and I'm in ministry full-time and I'm making twice as much gambling at nights than I am working at the church. It's this weird complication of my life. I get married in 2006 and I'm still gambling a lot, but my addiction is starting to take me over. I've now been in Gamblers Anonymous for 15 years and I've been clean and sober from gambling. I'm an entrepreneur, so I gamble every day. I won't even let myself do fantasy football at this point. So I stay far away from those things. But between 2005 and 2008, I had racked up behind my wife's back over $70,000 in credit card debt, as well as a second mortgage on her house. And I was making $28,000 a year and I had $70,000 in credit card debt at an interest rate of 21%. And so I had more bills than I had money coming in. And in June of 2008, I confessed to my wife. I couldn't do it anymore. I'm like, I've had an affair with money behind your back. I'm so painfully, regretfully sorry. I need to work on all this. She should have and could have left me. And she didn't. I got into counseling. She got into counseling. We got into counseling together. I got into a whole bunch of financial recovery type things. I worked 90 to 110 hours for over the course of a decade to try to rid myself of that pain and then to try to create the gain in which I get to live in now. I had messed up so bigly. I'm not the only person. For me to blame my dad and not take any ownership myself is irresponsible. Even though he was the adult and I was the kid, I was with sin too. And my wife in this situation, I don't think that she was with sin. This was a very different situation. I was the one that messed up. And she gave me the gift of forgiveness before I ever gave it to my dad. But forgiveness did not mean acceptance. She said, I'm going to stick with you. And then she put a whole bunch of asterisks on that. You have to do this and this and this, and these things have to improve. And like literally last night, my wife and I had one of our monthly business meetings in which we talk about our finances and we dream and scheme together. And we're so clear about money and feelings and all these other things now because we tend to bottle that up because we're never taught how to do those things and how to have those really healthy and great conversations. And so I was given forgiveness by my wife and I was given acceptance, but it was conditional. It was a yes when. This one of my favorite business philosophies is yes when. Do you want something great in your life? Yes. The answer should be yes. You can have that when you do X, Y, and Z. Did I want forgiveness? Yes. I had to show that I was completely dedicated to sobriety. And I had to show and earn her trust back. And for my dad, I didn't want to welcome an acceptance because that was a phase of my life in which I wasn't ready to deal with that. But I didn't have to accept him back into my life and forgive him at the same time. Those were mutually exclusive to one another. And I was ready for one, but I was not ready for the other. Thank you. That was a wonderful depiction and very transparent share. And I honor you for that. 
so many things just came out. I'd say that one thing is the recurring theme of this discussion is that leaders go first. Whether you view yourself as a leader or not, you had to go. You had to share this at some point, lest don't even I can't even think about what would happen if you didn't have that conversation in 2008. So you had it. You went. You did it. I had to own up and fess up to my shortcomings, no doubt. I had to admit it. My six-year-old is a half dinosaur, half tender-hearted kid named Simon. He's like a little velociraptor, just tears up everything. And he's a little liar, Matt. I'm asking some of my other friends that have young boys, and they're like, yeah, boys seem to lie more than girls. I grew up in a household full of estrogen. My dad wasn't around. It was my mom, my sister, and then we had one family member in town. It was my aunt, and three of her four kids were girls. So I grew up with estrogen. So much so that when my sister had her first period, we went out to lunch to celebrate and she got a purse filled with tampons as a gift. Like I was surrounded by the weirdest (laughs) female energy things. Yeah. Just absolutely positively bizarre. And I got really, really comfortable by seeing this world more through a feminine lens than a masculine lens. The John Eldridge wild at heart doesn't resonate with me, but Ted Lasso resonates with me. This idea of kindness and gentleness and that sort, those are the things that really resonate with me. And because I had a different worldview, I think I was able to lean on this idea of gentleness and lean on this idea of acceptance and lean on this idea of understanding more than living in this harsh, rigid kind of environment. And so those have all really impacted how I view the world and how I serve the world now. How are gentleness, kindness, how are those traits of what we might call modern masculinity, if that concept connects with you? I was at a mastermind down in Tulum, Mexico a couple of years ago, and it was with a group of 40 guys that are all high net worth individuals, and all were striving to become better versions of ourselves. I almost didn't sign up to even join the group because it was all guys, and that's just an uncomfortable place for me. It's just not familiar to me. The opening discussion that went for like two hours, and I'm a guy that loves the microphone and loves talking and speaking up and giving my two cents. And I'm always like, okay, Simon Sinek says leaders eat last, so I need to talk last. But boy, do I have something great to say. And so, so I was this constant wrestling with. And the topic was being a real man. And we spent the time talking about what does it mean to be a real man? What has society told us? So you picture the Marlboro man. And you're picturing somebody who is bottling up their emotions and all these other things. And we spent a half hour living in this conversation of what a real man is. And I never knew real men in that kind of categorization. I had no positive male influences in my life until I was 15 years old. And I found a guy at church that was super impactful for me. I had none. It was all women in my world. And we then pivoted the conversation down in Tulum and the conversation switched to what does it mean to be a good man? And it was such a different language piece. The idea and the approach of being a good man was viewed with a very different lens. And so there I am in this group of 40 guys, some I know, some I don't. And I finally get the courage. And I'm quiet for this two hour thing. I'm quiet for the first hour and 45 minutes. And I finally get the courage and I just confess, I'm like, guys, this has been a real struggle for me because I don't understand masculinity in in its true form. It's never been modeled for me. And in fact, my dad was the Marlboro man and I grew to hate it. I grew to resent it. And so even as I'm talking right now, my eyes start filling up with tears thinking about just like, holy cow, there's this like brokenness of how I view what a man is supposed to be and what a man could be. And so as I'm trying to piece it together, they're like, oh, you're actually... 
Eric, you're more of a man than I am. I didn't see it. And I just got all this affirmation, which really helped me to understand. No, I am sensitive. I am emotional. I am these things that aren't traditional masculine traits. And instead, I try to be understanding and I try to be gentle and I try to be generous and I try to be overtly kind. It does not mean I'm a pushover by any means. This world is changed by gentleness, not by hardships and hardness. Leaders, they go first. Thank you for being real and keeping it real and sharing that. And that was an amazing share. And if anyone's listening, they're thinking, man, Eric, it's easy for him. He's gregarious. He talks with passion. Imagine Eric in an event where there's a bunch of other guys there and he's not talking and he is feeling inside something that causes him to not want to speak up. And he's feeling that he just broke through that even. If he can do it, you can all do it too. Leaders go first. So I feel compelled to share something personal around fathers since we're recording this on June 1st, 2023, which is three days past Tuesday after Memorial Day. That's the day, the anniversary of my father's passing. He passed away 18 years ago, Memorial Day, Tuesday, day after Memorial Day. And I recall every detail of these four days leading up to that with crystal clear clarity. We hadn't spoken in months leading up to that. And I was 27 turning 28, and we hadn't spoken in some time because my ego was so big and my ambition was so strong and my drive for money and growth and all of these things that I was taught in business or the right way to go was so big and family was not the thing. It was going into college and halfway through, then it it shifted for me. And this concept of forgiveness or acceptance, it was ringing true. I'm sure it was ringing true for him. I read his journal and his diary years later, and I'll share that in a moment. The part that really connects is that you forgave him, you shared that with him, and then six months later, he passed. I told my dad that I was sorry for being a poor son who didn't show up for a while, and I forgave him for being a father who maybe didn't listen. So it was I'm sorry and forgiveness at the same time on that Saturday going into that three-day golf tournament we played in. That's how we got together, to play in a father-son golf tournament together. And we had a clearing of the bridges, a come-to-Jesus discussion we hadn't talked in months. And we forgave each other and listened to each other. And we didn't argue at all for three straight days. And we finished second, damn it, second in that tournament. And I leave their house that Sunday, or that Monday evening, Memorial Day evening. I was full. My heart was full. My bucket was full. I was free and clear of any inner stress that I may have had, anything that was built up. And the next call I get the next morning when I wake up at 7.06, my mom's saying he just died. Oh my gosh. And I feel so fortunate by the grace of God that we'd had that conversation and everything had come and it ended that way because I can't imagine having a chip on my shoulder because my dad was the one I crave love from. And I love my mom to death and I'm going to see her tomorrow. I haven't seen her in a few months. I get to see her tomorrow. I think about it all the time. Eric, that what if we hadn't had that conversation? Who would I be? I've got my own stuff. And I imagine when you say the word hot mess, I imagine that that term might be something that's more in my mind if I hadn't had that conversation. Not to throw any shade on you. I appreciate your entire journey. I associate or identify with the idea of being able to forgive and voice that and to do it now before it's too late and to do it now because we don't have any day promised to us but the moment. So just honor you for having the courage to do that after everything you shared. Your origin story is exceptional and painful and forgiveness is not something that you have to do. And you did it, man. I just love you for it. I 
respect and love for you for doing that. What a paralleling story that you and I have with our fathers of being able to give the gift of forgiveness to our fathers and to ourselves. And wouldn't you know, we had to take the first step, even though we're the kids, even though we're looking to other people. This world needs you and me to go first. I've got to take the first step and share with people out there who are entrepreneurs. You know what? I don't have any financial problems. I will outsell this. We'll keep growing. If you have a tax problem or a gambling problem or any kind of financial problem, it's okay. And there are people you can talk to about that. You're listening to two of them right now. If you have a problem with yelling at a spouse or at your kids, then you're hearing someone, at least on my end right now, that used to be a big yeller and have a temper who through work with the Front Row Dads organization I'm a part of that I love dearly, have now live in a yell-free home. There is a way to do it. And it is through going first, forgiving yourself and being able to have a little self-compassion and grace with yourself. You know what? I almost cried. I was on the verge of tears and you kept talking and I kept getting more inspired, Eric. So the tear didn't actually come to my cheek today, but I just love you for everything you've shared. This has been incredibly engaging. I just looked down at the clock. We've already been talking for a while. I didn't even realize that was amazing. Let me ask you this. I go in a different direction here. If there were a way that someone just felt so inspired to reach out to you today and they wanted to take advantage of you offering to share your book, how would we reach out to you and connect with you, Eric? Instagram is probably the easiest way. I spend a lot of time on Instagram. I'll respond to every message that comes to me. Real Eric Hatch. Real and then Eric is E-R-I-K and then Hatch like an egg. So Real Eric Hatch. So feel free to connect with me on there. I'm posting a ton about business and family and life and then the occasional inappropriate joke as well. It all, <laughs> it all finds its way to there. But I wrote a book that I think would be a really great gift for your audience here. It's called Play for the Person Next to You. It's a servant leadership guide. This is something I wrote back in 2018 and 2019. And it's the heart of what I do and how I serve the world and the mindset I take for things. So if you want a copy of this book, you need to DM me on Instagram and you just send me one word, one word only, and that word is leadership. So send me the word leadership, DM me on Instagram at Real Eric Hatch, and you can have a copy of the book. The AI takes over from there. It'll prompt you on how to sign up and how to, you just got to pay shipping and handling, but I'll sign it, I'll send it out, and that's my gift from me to you. Yeah, I just did all of that. And that's it's, it was very easy. And it's already told me what to do. And that was awesome. And I feel this has been a conversation. I love to be in a deep, real conversation. And it brings emotion. I love that. I welcome that. And for anyone out there, if this has been inspirational for you, or if this has been challenging or heavy for you, either way, I'm going to pull us into something a little bit lighter right now. Because I'm looking at Eric Hatch's Instagram. And his description is this. It is exceptional. Eric Hatch, real Eric Hatch, Eric with a K. Leadership and business coach, realtor, part-time hand model. Man, you guys got it better than the foot and face guys. Full-time beefcake. Yeah. What, the, oh, what yeah. is that? What is full-time beefcake? What does that even mean? I'm thinking of Bruce the Barber. Can you see me right now, Matt? <laughs> this is all the beefcake people need. Oh, man. This is great. <laughs> oh, you have the blue check mark too. Yeah, 15 bucks a month is all it takes to get the blue <laughs> check mark. Nice. Welcome to uh, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook nowadays. Awesome. Awesome. Hey, when I say eternal optimist, what does that mean to you, Eric? Eternal optimist. I think that a realist and an optimist are the same people. I think that a realist is banking on things that are going to go wrong. And an optimist understands things are going to go wrong, and it's still going to be okay. Wow. How does that feel? 
That feels like a brother from another mother speaking right there. So many people say optimists, they're Pollyanna, they're soft, always sunny, they don't see the real, they're naive. I would say an optimist and a realist, when those things are the same, that's when you've arrived and you have this inner peace and you're able to see that all the hard stuff is really, it's the foundation for shaping us into people that can serve the world. And I love your description. That's the best one I've heard yet. Ooh, and, I won uh, twice today, yeah. man. Actually, you beat, well, you beat me, Kyle. Because I asked Kyle that question. He had a really good answer. You, yes. you just you just got him. You know, <laughs> Matt, Matt, I'll tell you this is for a lot of years of my life, I was a because person because I grew up poor, because my mom died, because my dad was never around, because and everything on the other side of the because was an excuse or a reason why I wasn't living my best life. And I've learned to no longer say because, and I now say even though, even though I grew up poor, even though my mom died, even though my dad was absent. The next line that I say is an overcoming thing. And so the realists and the pessimists, they'll probably say because, and I think an optimist will say even though. Yeah. I love the way you added another layer in this onion. And I'm not going to call you Shrek beefcake, but I would say you added a layer in this (laughs) onion here. Shrek cake. I'll take Shrek Shrek cake. Shrek cake. Hashtag. Yes. Awesome. I would even frame that. I hear people sometimes, people I coach, they say the word, but in one of our agreements, I get their permission on pretty early on in the relationship is anytime you say, but I'm going to go, eh. and from now on it's, and, and there's no, but it's always, and what does Jon Snow say on Game of Thrones? I think he says everything before the, but is bullshit. Oh man. Now I've got to get a bleep on you. Cause you said BS out loud. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, That's awesome. I, ru- I ruined the show. Oh. No, you didn't ruin it. the guy who loves Jesus and cusses a little, okay? No, not ruining. Giving us the opportunity to practice our bleeping, our bleeping button, which our producers have. So that's great. Next question. Next question. You're in the lightning round, by the way. I didn't say that. So here's the lightning round. Okay, I'm ready. You just shared your book. In addition to yours, what might be one or two other books that you'd encourage people to check out that have had an impact or influence on you? I am a ferocious reader. I try to read two to three books a month. I don't know if that actually makes me ferocious or not, but I think we are a a product of the books we read and the people we surround ourselves with. And one of my favorite authors is Mike Michalowicz, and he's probably best known for writing a book called Profit First, which is fundamental for entrepreneurs, especially, which I know is so much of your audience. But he wrote a book called The Pumpkin Plan, and it's not his most popular book by any means, but it is my favorite in his arsenal. So in The Pumpkin Plan, he talks about if you want to grow not this tiny gourd or this 10-pound pumpkin at a pumpkin patch, but if you want that blue ribbon winning pumpkin, there's actually a philosophy in which to do so. And his book are the seven philosophies to grow these giant pumpkins, the things that everybody wants to take their picture with, things that people marvel about. And he uses it as a language piece in which to grow a really great audience. You figure out who your raving fans are and you pour everything into them. And so you don't need a thousand okay customers. You need 10 raving fans, right? So it's that mentality and I love it. But I also read it as a leadership book. And that actually for me is transformational. So I'll give you an example. My real estate company at its largest, we had about 55 people. And what's commonplace in any organization is the leader, the owner, the CEO, they'll spend all their time with their new people, training, developing, and creating because they're new, they don't know much, and so we're going to give our best to them. And what we do is we take the person who's the five-year veteran who's great at their job and we give them nothing because they have it figured out. In the pumpkin plan, one of the steps says, give all your attention to your big pumpkins. 
And the way in which my organization grew from 35 to 55 people in the course of about a year and a half, and we doubled our profit and we just did so many great things in so many lives was because I gave all my attention to my big pumpkins. And so I trained and developed and spent time with my top people more than I did the new folks. And our whole organization changed when I poured into the few instead of to the many. John Maxwell says, I love everybody in my organization, but you have to earn my time. And it's such a brilliant mindset. And so I love Maxwell stuff. I'll give one more book. And it's one I mentioned already. It's my favorite leadership book. I think it's Leaders Eat Last by Simon Sinek. Again, I think leaders go first. It's a totally different mindset of taking action. But when it comes to leading people, we are best at investing in them, asking a ton of questions. And it's about how we create opportunities for others, not just for us. Absolutely amazing. Eric, this has been an absolute game changer. This is why I love podcasting to meet you, to meet and have this conversation that's impacting me on a very personal level. I just want to say I love you. I thank you. It's been amazing having you on here today. I look forward to meeting you face to face, maybe in North Dakota, because I've got some friends, another friend now up there. So one of these days we'll get up there and when we're there i look forward to taking it to mr kyle reedstrom on the basketball <laughs> court or you name it we'll figure it out uh but just uh, real real don't uh don't, <laughs> don't sleep on this beefcake either all right they call me white chocolate out there vanilla thunder so <laughs> that's awesome well i'm sure you can jump so i look forward to it. eric thanks so much brother thank you it's a pleasure god bless